Hey there, I'm Kristen Haratunian, and I'm an advocate, trauma survivor, and professional public speaker in and outside of the Philadelphia area. And I'm Kelly Madden, a graduate student, mental health program coordinator, and professional public speaker from upstate New York. And we're trying to figure out how we got here. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the How We Got Here podcast. This is Kristen and Kelly here. And today I am so very excited to introduce our guest, Randy Moore. Um, Kelly knows Randy more than I do, but after doing a very extensive Google search on Randy, I'm like super impressed on just like all of the wonderful things that he's done in this world. Uh, Randy, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Randy Moore, and uh, you know, I'm a social worker by uh, training and also uh, a musician. Um, you know, I think that music has been a really key part of my healing. And so I'm excited to kind of talk about that because I think it's important that we have outlets to help us process our our experiences and our internal world. So, um, you know, I, I uh, I'm a proud owner of a English Springer Spain. You know, that's kind of my best friend. You might hear him every now and then kind of mess around in the background, but he, you know, he often on my podcast kind of chews on his bone or, you know, does something to let people know that he's there. So, um, but that's kind of just like a brief uh, about me. I'm, um, you know, there's plenty more to share, but I'll I'll let the conversation go where it is that uh, it does go. So, well, I'm seeing all of the guitars on your wall. For those that are just listening and can't see, like there is a ton of guitars, and I don't I don't know that much about music, but like you said that like music is something that's really healing for you. Like, what does that mean? Still, so for me, and really since I was a small child, music has has spoke to me in a way that. I just get something out of it that I don't get in any other space. Um, you know, it's kind of like a meditation in a way. And I feel like when I play music, I get closer to myself. Um, and so that can look like, you know, I call it pump in the well, where I just will sit with an instrument and play like piano or I'll play guitar. I'm actually doing a, um, a songwriting workshop this month and, you know, I'm writing a song a week. And so a lot of it is about intuition. And, you know, sometimes when you're playing, singing, you know, words will come up or emotions or feelings, and you're kind of like stitching them together. And a lot of times I've said that, you know, writing a song is almost writing something to yourself in the future. And there's been so many times that I've written something and I didn't understand it in the moment. And then I listened back to it a couple of years later and it was like I needed it in that moment that I didn't even know yet. So, you know, I think meditative practice is important. Mindfulness is important. And for me, I do that through music. You really had me there when you were talking about like writing something to your future, like like your future self. Like I, I actually went to many years ago, like five or six years ago, I went to a workshop and it was in the Bronx in New York and it was a writing workshop and I love writing. It's always been a passion of mine. And they did this exercise where it was like every day you started out with a fresh piece of paper, fresh pencil, pen, whatever, and you wrote whatever you needed to write. 
and you shared it. <laughs> and like, that was really intimate for me because I was, I remember when I submitted my like application to get there and uh, you had to submit like seven to 10 pieces. And I like went all over my stuff was like, well, this one or this one, like I didn't know which one to pick because I wanted to be perfect. And they were like, scrap all that. We're going to go with like what you were feeling, what you were writing right this second. And we're all going to critique it. And in that moment, I was absolutely terrified, but I actually made some some very good friends, like this guy Noah being one of them. Like, it's just, it's incredible how that vulnerability can not just like impact us, but other people as well. Yeah, I think it like, you know, as a social worker, obviously Brene Brown has a, a special place in my heart. And mm. she talks about how, connection and vulnerability really is the key to connection and to opening up ourselves to other people. You know, it's, it's a necessary part of, of building bridges to one another. And I think, you know, music is just a great example of how we're able to do that. I love that, Randy. And thanks folks for your patience as the animals run amok in the background here of the podcast recording, but just so excited to have you on, Randy, and also excited to learn more about your story and your journey, um, because of course I only know like one version of you. So um, I love how you're amplifying connection and how music connects us. But on the flip side of that, I'm also curious to learn more about how you chose music or fell into music and use that and enjoy that as such like not only a tool, but an outlet for your mental health and how that's really become a part of you, of Randy. And just curious to learn more about how little Randy found music. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. And I actually talked about this in one episode of, of the podcast, of my podcast that I did. Um, there's one song in particular from when I was quite young, and it was the original 1974 version of Dolly Parton's I Will Always Love You that my grandma, she had a little cassette recording and she would play it. And I remember being like really young and hearing it and thinking it was so beautiful and it spoke to me. And I didn't know why, but it was bringing up these emotions, these really deep emotions that I felt. And I would make her play it over and over again. And so, you know, that's like one of my first memories, but, you know, my grandma was a singer. And so she really pushed me in my early years to, to go into church and to sing and to express myself. And when I was young, I was, I was quite a little all over the place, like hyperactive kid, but I was kind of introverted. Um, but I wrote these little poems and I like, I, you know, and that was something that she did. So she really nurtured that in me. Um, and I found that through poetry, through music, whether it was singing somebody else's song or singing my own, I, as I said at the top, I felt closer to my truth or the truth in some way. And, you know, I, I often say I don't believe in good or bad music. I just believe in honest and dishonest music. And, you know, because anything can be good. Some of my favorite artists are like, by definition, not the greatest singer or, you know, but they take what they have in their being and create something 
with their hands and their skills and it's a testament to their story and so you know i've sought to do that in my adult life with music um but yeah i would say that she really you know nurtured that and kind of it just felt like a place that i could go to where i wasn't judged or i wasn't ostracized in some way like i was in other kind of ways I was when I was young. So I definitely empathize with that feeling of a safe space, especially as a young adult, a young person of any age, any school-aged person. I think Kristen and I talk about that a lot in our each of our stories and our journeys when we go to schools and speak to youth and young adults. And I think that safe spaces, I don't know, you know, I currently work in a school and I feel like when I pose that question, when I talk to youth who might be in an active crisis, they're like, what are you talking about, Miss Madden? A safe space? I don't have one of those. And I, all of that to say, I just feel like in 2024, post-COVID, that concept of a safe space has kind of been like lost, at least from what I've observed from the youth that I work with. And it's just beautiful to hear that you had that at such a young age. But on the the other side of that coin, I just I'm noticing this kind of phenomenon, at least with again the middle schoolers and high schoolers here in upstate New York, that they don't have like a safe space or the, you know, concept of a safe space, whether that's a physical or non-physical place. But curious to hear more, like your thoughts on that, or at least how you established that and like kept that safe space throughout your life obviously you're an adult now and you're still just as passionate about about music yeah well you know it's funny because it's kind of like a double-edged sword I think you know and Kristen something really resonated that you had shared with your own experience in a previous episode where you you kind of talked or alluded to you know being young and or maybe it was Kelly, I, I can't quite remember, but, you know, being young and going to school and it being horrible and then going home and it being horrible. So when you're young, you don't have a place to turn. You don't. So for me, that was music and that was a place that I could kind of go into myself. And I'm a person that has a very active and vivid internal world and there are some people who have more of an external world and they really live in that space whereas for me my internal world is really rich I like to chase my thoughts you know obviously being on this podcast I have my history with mental health and I can also share that it, it is a double-edged sword because there were at times where for me creativity can also look like mania where I'm chasing ideas and becoming obsessed with ideas and thoughts. And so, you know, some doctors have said, well, that's not inherently a good thing. And some have said like, you know, well, kind of getting something out of it. So it's, it's, I don't, I think that's really the gray area, you know, that also is when I reflect on if, 
the question of like, if I could get rid of my mental illness, would I? And I think the honest answer is I wouldn't, you know, I'd always try to manage it better, but it's so integral to who I am as an individual and my emotions and how I access those emotions and the depth to which I can access those emotions that to take that away would take a lot of good away, a lot of my gifts away. And so you know, I always try to reframe that for people um, when I have the opportunity that the same place where our strife and our struggles are born out of is also where our gifts come from as well. And if we can just see that, then, you know, we can stand inside that a little brighter, I think. Well, I think like really similarly, what I've seen, at least in my recovery journey, is that when I am let's say, well, right? Like I'm in like a good place. I'm like taking my medication, I'm like talking to the doctors, I'm going to therapy. I'm like doing all of the things. I like almost convince myself like, well, my writing is not good enough. Or like, I can't like tap into something as easy as I could than when I am like in the darkness struggling. And like, I would have this sort of like, I mean, I see it now as like a false narrative that like when I am not well, when I am off of my medication, when I am not taking like the therapeutic steps that I need to, I would always say to myself, well, you are much better creatively. But like, it is like this very fine double-edged sword of like, it's not that I can't be creative in this space right now, right? Like it's, it's a different type of creativity. Um, is my understanding for me. And I can only speak for myself, right? Um, and that, like, it's just interesting how, like, at least for me, like, my mind can, like, trick me into, like, going backwards when the reality is, like, I've written beautiful stuff in my recovery process. Like, almost probably more dynamic than it was before um, because, like, of the versions that we are today versus two years ago or two months ago or two weeks ago. Um, do you find that like your work has changed over the years? Definitely. You know, I got sober a, a little, like a little over 500 days ago from alcohol. And that was a big thing in my recovery as well, you know, because I recognized that there was something in my life that was not working and I removed it to see if they're, you know, if it would help the problem that I was dealing with my mental health, you know, I realized that it, it, it didn't fix what I needed it to fix. And it was like, okay, that was disappointing. I've got more work to do, but it was new information that was really important. And, you know, a lot of times I've, when I get really creative, I take a step back and I say, okay, it, sometimes it is like a red flag, like that some might be going on that I might be going into, you know, a more quote unquote manic, hypomanic type episode. Um, but, you know, I've written from the depths of depression as well. And so, you know, it is different. I, I think it's, I've learned that it is a processing of both states. And so, you know, Sometimes it is hard to write when there's things are going great, but, you know, sometimes you can, and I find in those moments that I chase like my imagination more, um, you know, I imagine a story that's not mine 
I'm right about that. And that kind of is the direction I go. But, you know, for me, it's been really complicated because I, I was first diagnosed with, you know, what would be described as serious mental illness when I was 12 and started showing symptoms really when I was about eight. And I kept that to myself. Um, you know, I obviously was creative, but I remember a very specific time where I, I showed a poem that I had written to some adults and it was like one of the first times that I experienced this where they, it was almost like a fascination, like, wow, this is interesting that a 10 year old or 11 year old or however old I was can write this, but like, also what does this mean? Because it's dark and, you know, I was really pulling themes from, you know, like, I didn't really know why I was choosing these things, but they were speaking to me and I just chased them. And so, um, you know, but I think that I've been diagnosed with many different illnesses over the years and kind of as I've treated those in my journey, like some symptoms have come up and some have gone down. And so it looks like different illnesses. And so, you know, for me, it's it's just easier to kind of say like, I deal with serious mental illness, serious and persistent mental illness. You know, I've had long stints in my life where I've been great and not needed medication. And then, you know, there are times like now that I can't go without it. Like if I don't even want to try, you know, it's, it's not, not for me, but, um, but yeah, so I don't know where we were going with that, but uh, you know, I, all that's to say is that, I think it can be an ind indicator with like creativity and writing and like, you know, where I'm at. And I kind of use that as, as a compass to find my way back to myself. I love that. And as a fellow human, I live with a mood disorder. I identify with living with bipolar two disorder and I really have a hard time, um, viewing my mania as something, I don't want to say positive, but an opportunity to explore my thoughts. I think I just shut down because I'm so used to telling myself, this is not normal. This is not okay. I think I worked myself up a bit. There's a lot of layers there. We'll dive into it another time, but um, just really appreciate how you're reframing mania into something so natural, something to lean into and something to explore as safely and as comfortably as you can. Um, so yeah, just wanted to acknowledge that, but also kind of want to shift gears a little bit, Randy, something I was so excited to hear about um, when you accepted our invitation to the podcast was to hear more of, of course, as comfortable as you feel sharing, but um, to hear more about what it was like growing up in the South. We we are two folks who live in New York and Pennsylvania, um, of course, have family members, you know, maybe down South, but um, I think at least to a lot of, you know, our listeners and the folks in our in our orbit who will listen to this, they might not 
know what the climate is like down there in terms of mental health in general, mental health resources, mental health help, or even the conversation around it. And um, I'm just curious and really interested to hear more. I know we've connected one-on-one about it and had conversations, but um, I just think it's so important to talk about. Absolutely. Well, you know, I guess I will kind of go to the beginning, which is um, I was born in like rural South Carolina. Um, My mom was a young mom. She was 19. And my dad was actually from Appalachia. Um, So, you know, during my childhood, my mom would kind of pack me up and send me to the mountains for a period of time to connect with that part of my family and my history. And so I've always had a deep connection to the mountains. But, you know, especially because I didn't get to know my dad. My dad passed away when my mom was eight months pregnant. And it was, you know, very tragic kind of circumstance. But that was kind of, I always consider that to be, in some ways, my first trauma. Because I was in the womb during that period as my mom grieved her husband. um, And the life that she had hoped for herself and... And then, you know, I came into the world and um, you don't really get to pick where you come. But, you know, I would say for the the most part, you know, it was it was it was a, an interesting upbringing. You know, it, it was hard in that there were. You know, it was one of the poorest counties in South Carolina. And so, you know, I. As I've gotten older and you and left that part of the country, I realized the limited opportunity that I would have had if I stayed. I think I intuitively knew that I would never be able to do the things that I wanted to do in that environment. But I also did not connect with the environment in a lot of ways. You know, for example, like this is something that I've had to deal with as an adult, but you know, I went to a school called Robert E. Lee Academy, which was built as, I mean, a segregation academy. I mean, it was built explicitly for the reason of when they integrated schools in South Carolina, that parents could send their children out of, to a school that was outside of the school district. And in my county, there was one school district. So you either went to the one school district or you could go to this school. But, you know, I was kind of born into like I guess I was like the second generation of that because my mom and her sisters went to that school. Um, It's built in the 60s. And that was not something that was explicitly talked about. Like it was like there was no policy that said, you know, persons of color could not go to school with with white persons. But at the end of the day, we were separated and we you know, it was kind of like, you know, the only place that you interacted with people outside your race in this environment was at the grocery store. Um, But you went to your, your church at where you all looked the same and you went to school where you all looked the same. Um, And as I was getting older, you know, I started having questions about why that might be. And, you know, that was one of the first indications or, you know, as a social worker, my journey really started with that question of like, 
why is this okay? Like, this doesn't feel okay. And I remember, like, my cousin, who also went to the school, you know, we were kind of close growing up, and she called me a few years ago, and it, her son was about to start school, and she asked me, and she didn't say, like, outright, like, do you think he shouldn't go to this school because of the fact that we're kept separate, you know, but she was like, I mean, do you think, it was kind of like the question that wasn't explicitly said, but she was like, do you think he should go here? And I told her, no, like, I don't think that that's a good learning environment. I think it, I think it is an unrealistic expectation for a child to believe that they will never interact with somebody different than themselves. And it's setting them up for failure. So, you know, what set us up for failure. And there's a lot of stuff we had to unlearn and, you know, deal with as adults that you, we otherwise you know, could have dealt with if we had just been in an environment where there was more of a focus on like diversity and the difference of perspective. And, you know, and I think they would have told you that, but it would have been a lie. And so I think that that's, um, you know, one of the things that I've, I've had to overcome. But the other thing is that being a, a queer person in the South, um, there was that sense of otherness that I felt from a very young age always kind of, in a lot of ways, made me connect with people who had been othered, people who had disabilities or people who, you know, were kind of overlooked. Those were the kids that I was um, friends with. And so, um, you know, I think... In a lot of ways, I've had to do a lot of, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, reconciliation, I guess, with the fact that there are some things that I'm very proud of about where I come from. You know, I, I've really connect to Scots-Irish ancestry and the music that comes through those people and the, and the storytelling and the sense of humor and those things that I think are really important. But there are also things that I've had to reckon with that, you know, I, I'm not proud of. And so, you know, I try to, I try to be accountable where I can be. And I also recognize that when I come up short, because we're all going to have blind spots that we just can't see, but beyond to just, Admit that you got it wrong and try to make it right and to move forward instead of doubling down. And the idea mean that you're taking it the wrong way. And so I think that that is, um, you know, at least something that my youth taught me. I mean, I can't even imagine growing up in an environment where like it's there's segregation, but that's not really labeled segregation. And it's like, you know, you talked about like how, you know, I love this, the term like diversity is our strength and like mm -hmm. how we can like learn from one another and all of our own different experiences and like lacking that kind of like set you back in a way. I mean, like you're thriving now from what I can tell, but you know, it's like, with that setback of like okay like this is something that i'm lacking do you think that sort of like slingshotted you into social work like do you think it was like okay like because i'm not getting this piece i want to learn like all about it later on in life 
I think so. You know, with social work, it was interesting because when I went to school, I originally, you know, I kind of tried a lot of different things and I was interested in social justice. You know, at the time when I was kind of picking my major, the Occupy Wall Street movement was really big. This was like 2010. Um, and, you know, at the time, also Nikki Haley, who's running in for president, was the governor of my state and was kind of a very vocal opponent to those protesters who were just trying to make a point to say, like, there is unfair wealth distribution in this country and we need to do something about it. And and so that was like one of the first like instances where my eyes were opened but I, I was kind of pursuing English because I liked writing but I didn't know what I wanted to do um, and so I, I went and talked to a like a social work um, advisor at the School of Social Work at USC and you know she was like yeah you can do all of these things but you know you'll come out of this program with a skill set and so to me it was important that I was able to explore these ideas and these themes and, and I was really good at it. I was really good at like, for me, I, you know, one of the things with mental illness that I'll just share is I found out much, much, much later in life that I have probably been on the autism spectrum the whole time. And I didn't know it, you know? And so these things like, the hyperactive focus and the intense, you know, super focus that I'll get on things that looks like mania, you know, also could be associated with autism as well. And so I, I found that these things are just inextricably linked in, into like a part of our story. And so, um, yeah, I'll, I'll try to get my thought back on track on that, but, but yeah, so. I also don't know what I want to do with my life, <laughs> so I yeah. just have no clue. Um, I know that I want to help people. I know that I love advocacy. I know that I love talking about reducing stigma, but I think at the end of the day, like there's at least from what I've heard with every person that we've had on our pod, like there's always been this little thing that's like, you should do this, you should do this. And like, it's whether or not we choose to follow it. And I'm sure with your life experiences, like there have been some people that you've worked with that you've been able to help along with your education. Yeah. You know, it was funny when I, going back to my kind of family, when I was in social work school and I was doing my bachelor's, I actually won undergraduate social work student of the year award for some work I did on LGBTQIA stuff, but it was, again, I think we've used this word a lot, a double-edged sword, um, because I couldn't invite members of my family to come see me get this award, even though I was the first person in my family who had gone to college. And not only went to college, I was like, I dropped out of high school after the ninth grade. So I, you know, I kind of clawed my way back to like, it was one of those things where I was like, I'm going to prove all of you wrong because so many people looked at me as a, like a, I wasted the opportunity that I had. And so I remember that day, like getting that award and it was so bittersweet because, you know, I, I 
couldn't celebrate with the people who, you know, who had made that opportunity possible for me, even if we don't agree on a lot of things, you know, their sacrifices did get me to where I am today. And I'm, am thankful for that, but it has been, it's been, it can be a little lonely to not be able to share in or not feel like you're understood in the work that you do. You know, I go home all the time and I get, every time I go home, my grandparents ask me like, where I live and what I do. And I tell them and they're like, are silent. Cause they don't know. They don't, I don't think they have a, a language to relate to like what it is that I do, you know, talk about like mental health advocacy for young people and like, you know, doing federal policy advocacy in my day job. Like they're like, what? Like, you know, so, but I, you know, it, I think that in my adult life, at least one of my goals have been carving out a space, whether it be through friendships or relationships and other ways um, where I can, you know, I get excited about stuff. I, I get excited about my art. I get excited about my work and I often will like want to share it with somebody and get their feedback. And so, you know, I'm just looking for my partners in the world that I can like share those things with and who will encourage me to keep doing them as well. So. I love that, Randy. And, you know, I'll always nerd out about social work with, <laughs> with yeah. you. I'm one semester, one semester away from being a big kid social worker. I'm a baby social worker right now. At least that's what everyone says nicely and in a joking manner, no shade there, but, um, yeah, I'm, I love that we like organically fell in to mental health advocacy. Of course, that's where our paths crossed and how we met, but a common thread throughout our podcast and all of our episodes up until this point has been advocacy and how all of these wonderful, beautiful folks who have joined us kind of fell into each of their perspective. Um, I don't want to say fields, but arenas of advocacy. And I know you've held, um, you know, you're doing social work at a macro level. You've held positions in your community organizing um, and you, you worked for, oh my gosh, what's his name? Um, Representative Mark. Senator, yes, Senator yes, Mark Warner. Senator Mark Warner. Thank <laughs> you. And I, all of that said, I'm I'm just curious to hear more about how you ended up specifically in mental health advocacy, but also how you kind of found found that strength that I think Kristen and I empathize with. That when you were ready and you sat down and you thought to yourself, like I'm ready to share my story and a little bit about myself in my lived experience in order to make others, even if they're strangers, feel more comfortable and more heard. And so I guess that's kind of two questions. One, how did you find yourself in mental health advocacy? But also two, when did you know that you were ready, you know, to share your lived experience within your advocacy? Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I would love to say that I was just like, always this like outgoing and you know that I just chased it down and in some ways I did chase it down but 
I was kind of unwilling in a lot of ways because I am naturally like the biggest introvert. I just, I like, as I said at the top of the episode, I have a very, I, I would say, and maybe people that know me best would describe it also as intense inner world where like, there's just a lot going on. And, you know, so for me, like public speaking makes me really nervous. Like, the thing with, that I didn't realize, like, with eye contact is, like, even, like, sitting here talking with you all, like, I, I actually have you pulled down so I can't see your faces, because when I, it ha eye contact will really throw me off, and where I'll be, like, it's funny, you just find yourself, like, your mind wandering about it, like, what, like, what does that mean, or, like, maybe, or ascribing, like, emotions to states that are not like what the person's feeling is just made up on my end so like public speaking has never been like a super like great thing but you know the thing with social work and with mental health advocacy is that I've always found that for me and I think part of you know having an Aspie brain is that injustice and truth are like central and core to like or addressing injustice I should say are central and core to who I am as a person and like when things are not right I you know it's like the thing that like annoys that you just can't ignore like it just goes off and off and off and it just bothers the hell out of you um you know so for me like I've been blessed because each opportunity has led to the next one in a really beautiful way. And I always tell, like when I, especially young social workers that come into like interactions with, you know, I, I make sure to tell them like, you don't have to have it all planned out because believe me, like, even if you do, like, you're going to be thankful for the opportunities that you didn't get. Like, at some point, you may not understand the whole road now, but you will eventually the disappointments that those disappointments will make you who you will ultimately become and you will be better and thankful for them. And so, you know, there was a brief period in my early 20s where I was very secretive about my mental health challenges and during that time I also was the healthiest that I had been where I wasn't on medication so so much of what I was doing was I have to move beyond um like my teenage years and like what happened um I have to get away from that and that and then you know as I got to my mid-20s and started you know my drinking started picking up and you know partying all the things you do I realized that, okay, well, I'm actually like using these things to, to feel less or to, in some ways, get more out of a situation. So, you know, I, it, the hardest thing about quitting drinking for me was the social aspect, like, I didn't know how much I needed it to feel comfortable in a room of strangers and to feel like I could talk about myself and be like everybody else. And I would even say like, but the problem was I would go home and I'd drink alone excessively. And, 
you know, so I would, I would often say I would, I would drink with other people to make my men more. And then I would go home and drink alone because I realized I never would. And that ultimately like was what it came down to. So, you know, in terms of finding myself a mental health, it's just, for me, it's just been about, it's been really easy in some, uh, not to say easy to tell my truth, but it just comes natural for me to be like, this is who I am. If you don't like me or you don't like this part of my story or it makes you uncomfortable or, you know, I've, I would rather you show yourself now out, you know, so that we don't have to deal with that because I, I have very little capacity for, um, in office, inauthenticity in my relationships. And so that, yeah, so that all of that to say is, you know, that kind of drives my, my interest and love of, of social work and mental health advocacy, at least. I mean, I really love how you talked about uh, specifically like sort of like these little tweaks of like change of behavior, like, oh, this might not be working for me or this is definitely working for me or let me try this. And like, especially like the drinking thing, like I saw on Instagram today, it was White Claw. They came out with like non-alcoholic seltzers. And it says White Claw. And like this very well could be fake news. I didn't look it up or fact check it. But either way, like I just thought it was like really interesting. Um, Kelly, can you fact check that? Um, <laughs> but I thought either way that like the the normalization of sobriety is actually quite incredible. That I've actually seen kids in school say, well, my I have a family history of substance use disorder. So I don't even want to like open that coconut. And I'm like, wow, that's like very insightful and very interesting because like, I don't know, like people can go out and have fun without getting like completely hammered. Um, yes, Kelly said, I am correct. That is a thing. Um, the white claw being non-alcoholic. Um, and I don't know, I think, I, I think it just makes things a little bit easier that, that you don't necessarily have to be a recovering alcoholic to stop drinking. Um, you could just be like, this isn't good for me right now, or I'm taking a medication and this isn't like jiving with my medication, or I'm just taking a break and like, nobody thinks about it really, at least the people that matter at all. Yeah. And, and my hope is that, that the, since those exist, that will actually, you know, because what I've found, it, and I think it's dependent on where you live, but sober culture is lacking at least in some aspects of where I live. And, and I think it's, it's interesting in the spaces where there's like that mix, you know, like where you go to the brewery and they have like the coffees on tap and then also the seltzers and the kombucha. Like I do love that. That's not for everybody who's in recovery, obviously. So, um, you know, I, I hope that there, we are seeing more of a normalization and I think it's super I've heard young people say like, I have a family history and, you know, I wish that I had been more like, I don't know. I had thought about that more when I was younger. Um, but I, you know, we, my path rolled out the way it did, but you know, I, I, I do hope to see that there's more of a culture of sobriety. And I think with people like us, you know, where, 
we are young and like it just didn't seem like an option for so long to not drink like because everything that the whole world centered around alcohol and you can really see it like you really see it when you are removed from it like every ad every like every time you go out to a place and they don't have anything for you so the worst thing is to like go and like they give you like a still water and you're like this is this is so boring like everybody's having fun with their little drinks and it like give me some bubbles or something you know i, I love, love a, a mocktail i love a, a mocktail, mocktail. Yeah. i love a kombucha i like give it to me like i i live for that stuff um because like my partner is not in recovery like he's just like chilling and like him and his friends they go to the bar and like when i feel comfortable i go and i'll get myself like my silly little drink and and enjoy myself and a lot of people ask they're like how do you do that like how do you like still have fun and i'm like well a i drive myself so i always have an out like if i ever feel uncomfortable i'm bouncing and b it's because like I've gotten to know myself and I'm pretty freaking great. You know, like at least I feel that way right now. I might feel differently tomorrow, but I'm a good time. Um, probably better than without the drink, in my opinion. Um, I don't know if the opinion is is different for others, but I think sobriety, whether you find yourself having like alcoholic or addict tendencies or not, like it could be something interesting to explore for for anybody. Yeah, no, I definitely think so. And I agree with your assessment, at least for myself, too. Like, I'm better as a clearer person. Like, I think people enjoy me more as a clearer person. I, you know, one of the big reasons I quit drinking is because I was having some cognitive issues that were associated with that depression. And like, is this a part of alcohol or is it not? Like, the answer is more complicated than that. Like you, it's just not that cut and dry. It definitely wasn't helping. But when I took it out the way, there was still like, okay, like this is there's like a depression that is causing like an actual challenge in my brain and hard for me to perform tasks through like my executive functions, like whether it's like planning in the future or initiating tasks or controlling my attention span, like all of these little things. And I was like, that's, it's just not right. But, you know, as I, like I said, over 500 days now, I've gotten further and further away from alcohol. I feel closer and closer to myself and to, you know, I don't know if I'll ever be the same, but like, I'm grateful for the version of myself I have today because it's one that I can live with, like, and the other one I couldn't, like, I just couldn't live like that. And I'd also done it. Like I told myself, like, I've done my twenties. Like I did all this stuff. Like I part, I had fun. I, you know, I did college. I did all that stuff. Like, but I want more in my life. I want, I want to make something that's mine. And I don't think that alcohol was really contributing anything to that. And to be honest, it was taken away from it. So, but that's just, that was my personal journey with it. As the only person on the call, not living in sobriety, I always find it so, I'm not going to say enlightening, like beautiful and also educational to myself to hear how you both are navigating the world on top of living 
with mental illness on top of all of the other hats that you both wear. Um, I am a daughter of an alcoholic. My mom still attends meetings in different capacities, um, you know, have been lucky enough to grow up not knowing what it's like to grow up with her um, using. So um, have that common thread with you both, but also appreciate um, how how both of you teach me things about what it's like to live in sobriety and how you both live to your fullest despite navigating the world in that way. But um, Randy, I really appreciate what you said. Like, I like this version of me better. I am a clearer version of Randy. I am more Randy as a sober person. And I think that's a beautiful note to end on. And as we wrap up here, I just want to just make sure that I ask you, where can the the people listening find you? Where can they follow you? Do you have any upcoming projects that we can support? And just want to kind of give you the floor to share about how folks can stay up with you in your journey. Absolutely. Well, um, in terms of music, if People are curious about that. Uh, I'm on Spotify. I'm on like all the streaming sites, but it's uh, it's my first and middle name. Uh, so Randy Bryan, um, Bryan with a Y. Um, and if you search that, there's like a link tree out there and it's kind of a hub for all my like social links as well as the podcast, The Degrees of Freedom, A Mental Health Journey. I, I don't really have a set schedule for how I record that. It's kind of like, a lot of times I'll just have an idea and I'll be like, I'm going to do that. And it's like a two hour processing session for me where I like, you know, get to reflect deeply on my mental health and or music because music's a big part of my podcast. And so, you know, I really enjoy chasing those ideas of creativity and also using those opportunities to kind of, you know, tell my story and to connect with that part of my story. I'm always remembering things that I kind of forgot that happened, which maybe is better, but in some ways it's like, Oh, that's kind of lurking underneath. It's nice to uncover that. But yeah, Randy Bryan Moore um, is my name. Uh, You can search that and it should bring you all the things from the internet. So. And we'll put all the links in the description so folks can stay in touch with you. And Randy, I just want to say again, I am so grateful our paths crossed in our past, but so grateful again that you could join us and just share like a little sprinkle of your life and your journey and all of your favorite things and your passions. And um, we're just so grateful that you could join us for an episode of how we got here. So thank you. Absolutely. I'm I'm happy to share. And I just want to thank both of you and encourage you to keep doing this because even if you don't see those faces of the people who are going to benefit from it, like they're there and, you know, this exists for them. So thank you for doing it. And I appreciate the opportunity to be able to be a part of it. Thank you, Randy. Thanks, Randy.